Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. My name is Trey Kaufman. The Mosaic Life Podcast is a podcast on happiness, and my goal is to discover why so many of us chase it, yet so few of us ever truly find it. I'm going to do something a little bit different this week, and I'll explain why in just a moment. If you find a value in this week's episode of the podcast, please reach out to me. Say hi on Instagram at Trey Kaufman. Shoot me an email at onemosaiclife at gmail.com or send me a message on the website at themosaiclifepodcast.com. I'm making that ask this week because there have been two conversation topics in particular that I've received the most feedback on. The first of which is money, specifically my conversation with Christina Wise. And the second is when I have deep conversations about my or my guests' relationships with alcohol. It's extremely coincidental, not only that I had the chance to have a conversation this week with Jesse about his journey to recovery from alcohol and drugs, but subsequently next week, I have another amazing conversation with Carolina Jakowalska, who wrote the book Euphoric, Ditch Alcohol and Gain a Happier, More Confident You. What's even more coincidental is that September is National Recovery Month, which I was not aware of previously. So none of this was planned, not that it matters, but it was a nice dose of serendipity. So do me a favor, reach out to me any way you know how, just to say hi, or if you're curious to explore your own relationship with alcohol, and I'm, I'm not an expert, I will very quickly and adamantly say that, but I'm happy to talk about my experiences with it. And I'm of course more than happy to point you in the direction of additional resources if you're looking to find them. This intro was a bit different, but it leads very nicely into my guest today. Jesse Harless is a leader in the trauma-informed healing, addiction recovery, and mental health space. His passion is to help ambitious, heart-centered leaders and purpose-driven organizations clear obstacles out of their path and live in alignment with their highest potential. Jesse is the author of two best-selling books, holds a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, is a certified intuitive coach, detoxification specialist, and a heart math certified trainer. I'm so excited to share this conversation. Please welcome my guest, Jesse Harless. Jesse, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Trey. How are you? I'm doing well. How's the, how's the start of your week going? Uh, much better. <laughs> That's good. Much better in comparison to yesterday or just in, just overall the last few weeks? Uh, just the last five days of um, feeling under the weather. Yeah, that's too bad. I know I, I, 
I I know the last couple of years have been difficult with that. And I, every time I get a sniffle, I, you know, am I, do I have COVID? Do I have COVID? And I, I know that's not a very healthy mindset to have, but I feel like that's the, the world we're living in. But regardless, I'm glad that's, uh, that you're feeling better. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to have you on. I'm excited to talk about uh, your work. And the timing is interesting because you're the first of, I think, three conversations I'm having in the next couple of weeks in regard to alcohol and people who have had her have decided to give it up in their lives because it was not adding value. So I'm I'm very excited to to start going down this rabbit hole, I'll call it, because it's a it's it's been a very powerful part of my life or a deduction in my life. And it's been almost two years since I personally decided to quit drinking. And I just I'm looking forward to talking with you about that from a scientific standpoint because I know you've done a lot of work in that field. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations on two years of no alcohol. That's amazing, brother. Thank you. It's it's been I don't know. You know, I think we, we talked about this previously. I, um, I find myself in a trap and I, I will give you a very specific, specific example. I was applying for, for life insurance, like, like adults do. And, uh, I, I had mentioned it to the woman who was interviewing me. I said, I, I quit drinking almost two years ago. And then I had, I had to walk myself back because I, I'd had to clarify that I, 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 I didn't, I didn't seek help. I, I, don't, I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. I decided to quit drinking of my own volition. And I, I, I say that because I, one, don't want to discredit people who had a serious struggle with it. But I also find myself in this space where I know a lot of people are stopping drinking, but I don't really know what to, to call myself. I feel like I abused it to a certain extent, but I don't know. I mean, when you have conversations with people, I mean, do you have others who find themselves having this struggle? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the biggest struggle people have. Um, you know, if, if, you know, when people hit a rock bottom and they're in jail and they get out of jail and they're required to go to a meeting and they call themselves an alcoholic, well, that's because they were required to go. Um, and you know, to be in that setting, that's what they said, but you know, people who don't have that experience or don't hit a certain, even an emotional bottom that puts them in a position where they are just, sick and tired of, of being where they're at and they're, they, they want to make a change, then, you know, I, I think that that's most of the population, only a small percentage of the population ever go to, um, an AA meeting. So I think, um, yeah, I think, I think most people find natural recovery. So they're just like, Hey, you know, I want to improve my, my well-being. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing this, um, you know, for my family, but mostly for my health and myself. So yeah, I think it's very common. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly, it's been interesting for me because, uh, again, it's not something that I, I severely struggled with, but it, it was something that I knew just it was detracting from what I, I guess, from my potential. And I, I knew that. And so there are times when I feel like, oh, I can, you know, maybe ease it back into my life. But then I, I just remember that feeling of a lack of accomplishment when I, I spend a night drinking versus, you know, actually getting some work done on, on a podcast or, you know, on a client website or anything of the sort. And so, I don't know, I, I, I don't foresee myself going back to it, but at the same time, uh, there is this kind of sliding scale where I feel like it is something that I could reintroduce into my life if perhaps I've reached all my goals. But it, I, I feel like that can also be a slippery slope. I mean, when you what what has your experience been? I'd like to actually start there because I know you have you've got quite a different one from myself, and I want to know what led you into the work that you're currently doing. 
Well, you know, for me, it, it's addiction runs in the family for me pretty deep. And so I think uh, there's many opportunities to see that there could be a potential for an ad- uh, addiction in my life. Yeah. And, you know, when I was younger, you know, 12, 13, I was into online pornography and online games and, and that. And then what I mean into it, I mean, today, this might be normal with the pandemic and people be on the computer for 12 hours. But when I was in, you know, 97, you know, it was not so normal. And, you know, I'd spend eight hours a night and, and, and that went on for like eight years. So, yeah. you know, by the time I found alcohol and, and, and drugs, like it was just, the fertile soil. It was like, Oh, okay. Now I get to use this to get outside of myself. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I had a really terrible problem with alcohol. I definitely had a terrible problem with, 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 uh, psychoactive substances like cocaine and opioids. And, uh, so that's where things became really complicated between the ages of like 19 and 22 became very serious. Um, especially after 20, when my father passed away, who was an alcoholic, he was his, so, so, so were his uncles. Um, so my, I'm sorry, his, his brothers and my uncles. So, you know, it's, um, it was, it was, there was a potential there for addiction for me for sure. And I just ended up by 22 getting arrested with serious charges. So all related to addiction literally because of my addiction to opioids and and obviously that wasn't the root root cause because you got to right. do deeper work to understand the root cause of why this is all happening but but um yeah so so for me at 22 that was it you know and that was uh, over 15 years ago yeah and i i, I like the concept and i, I definitely want to delve more into the deeper work because when you talk about you know at I'm not sure what age you mentioned, but you you mentioned in, in 1997 being addicted to to games and porn and being on the computer eight to 12 hours a day. Like you said, that may not be completely out of the norm in today's life, but at the same time, you know when when you feel like you have the need to escape reality for that length of time through through throwing yourself into to games or porn. I, when did you really start to feel like you had that? I don't, I don't. I don't know if it's a misnomer to say addictive personality. I know I've heard that many, many times, but I don't know if that's the correct technical term. Is that what? You, how would you? How you describe yourself at that point in time? No, I, I would say more of like traumatized personality. I did what I did because that's what helped me to survive, and so I, I you know, if I didn't do those things, I don't know what I would have done. Maybe it would have been suicide, you know, you know what I mean? So like these are, these are coping mechanisms I was blessed to even have. And, um, I, you know, so we have to re-examine the way we talk about addiction. We got to re-examine the way we talk about this stuff because, you know, the reality is I did that and that, that helped me to get through that. And, um, you know, yeah, there was there healthier coping mechanisms that, uh, yeah, maybe, but, uh, didn't know about them and was, was doing my best. <laughs> and I think that's what most people are doing in any given moment is doing their best. And, uh, that's what was happening at those times. 
Yeah, that's super interesting to me because, like you said, you were fortunate in a sense to have coping mechanisms at all. And I'm sure there are people, especially in their youth, where they would throw themselves into sports or name any other activity. And I, I think to a certain degree, sports in particular, even video games, I mean, there is the, you are using that as an outlet, but anything that you overdo can become a, a, a major problem in your life. And I like the idea of reframing how we define addiction. And I think there has been such wonderful conversation around mental health recently. I think we have a long way to go with addiction. And I, I will let you clarify that statement in a moment. Uh, but when we... When we when we talk about these these coping mechanisms, as, as you mentioned, at what point do they become dangerous, even if they they can be seemingly, I guess, uh, not not simple, but seemingly, seemingly innocuous is the word I'm looking for. Well, there's no doubt, you know, there's coping mechanisms that are deadly. And, right. Of course. You know, so I, I think that you know they can they. Some just take longer than others. You know, if you're doing ice, you're doing crystal math. I mean, right. you know, you're only going to get away with that for so long. I mean, some people do it for many, many years, but like, you know, it, it's the same with fentanyl. You know, it's like, you're, you're not going to have a long life with that. And right. it, it's, so it's like those coping mechanisms are, you know, not going to last very long. But like, if you were drinking alcohol, you might be able to get away with that for 40 years. Right. Um, so I think, or even food, I mean, food, I think is the biggest addiction and I, and that one, that one you can last for 50 years or longer or maybe, yeah. maybe longer than that. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of pick your poison, but you know, we got to look at like, why, why am I eating food? Why right. am I wanting to numb out of my life? And, and that's really the bigger question is like, why do I want to numb out? And, um, you know, and, and like you said, people do it with running, they do it all different types of ways to numb out. And, you know, even spirituality, they use meditations, a big one to bypass emotions, um, trauma, pain. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's like kind of just pick your poison, but I mean, of course, physical substances are going to cause, um, sometimes more physical, um, obvious characteristics that are going to be, oh, okay, look at the bags under his eyes or right. look at, you know, so I'm, you know, we just, we live in a society that judges people with addiction, but the reality is we all have addiction. And if once we just start to admit that we can start to go, well, if we all have addiction, then what's my addiction? Yeah. And then once you ask that question, it's more of like, okay, well, maybe you're addicted to controlling and protecting and avoiding the pain that you have, have, have had in your life. And now with your career, you've been able to avoid all that. But now when you slow down, you can't be with yourself for 10 minutes. Right. And that person's a millionaire, right? Or he's right. You know, doing, so it's like, what, you know, so that, that, this is how I look at it. We have to stop saying it's a addictive personality or that right. person's an addict over there. And I'm glad my life's all together. It's like, well, that's not really how it works, but in our definition of addiction, that's how it works. That's why it's confusing. So we got to redefine addiction. We have to look at trauma. We have to look at emotional injuries, which we all have encountered yeah. emotional injuries. 
And then we'll understand why we're numbing out today by avoiding the phone call to our mother or, you know, when we don't get a text message back from someone for two hours, we're triggered. You know, it's like we need to look at our own selves and then realize that maybe I need to have a little more compassion to that person who's really struggling with opioid addiction. Um, Yeah. But it's hard, you know, if you think you don't have addiction, you think you've never had that in your life, it's hard. It's, it's kind of, you look at people like an alien. Um, but the reality is, is they're literally your brother and sister. And, you know, if you had their life, you'd be doing the same thing. Absolutely. You know, as you said that, it, it made me feel that uh, when I... When I mentioned the the term addictive personality, and when I hear that term, it, it feels like a cop out now because there's so much more. This, there's so much deeper to go into that. And what I really would like to know is how you start to ha- how you personally, because I mean, you help people through this. How do you start to have these conversations with people? How do you help them start to open up to their own? their own triggers, you know, helping them to be able to sit with themselves. Like you said, I mean, yes, you can be addicted to anything such as meditation, but I think from, uh, from a healing standpoint, I've been able to use meditation to be comfortable sitting in my own thoughts. Now, is it possible to overuse it? I'm sure. But when you work with folks, I mean, how do you start to open up this dialogue with them? Yeah. It's usually in the first call, it becomes very evident where they're hiding pain or where they're avoiding pain. And that's really where we start to go. And it might be around money. Money is a big pain point for people. So that's where like when someone starts to talk about money, it's like, all right, let's go to explore that. And they're like, what what do you mean? What's to explore? I don't have money. And and it's like, well, no, let's go deeper. And then it's like, oh my God, when I was five years old, I I stole a toy and because my mom wouldn't pay for it. And, and today I'm still running on that. I have this fear of, of like, if I don't get my needs met, I'm, I'm not worthy. And it's like, oh, so that's in the first conversation, you know, so you can really draw this out of people with, with, with a inquiry using inquiry and, and, and diving deep. And, you know, if, and, and, you know, it's something that if you, if you haven't experienced it, you can't give it away. So, I've been able to experience certain things and work with many people in this, in this topic. So I get to work with people who are very, very successful entrepreneurs, CEOs, you know, big pharma techs and reps all all the way to the person who's, you know, running the sober home down the street, who's, you know, got, you know, 15 guys that they look after and, and he's just looking to, you know, keep sanity in his life. So, you know, all different types of walks of life. And of course I've, and that's not where I started. Of course, right. I started with, with the drug courts. I started with myself and my own recovery and working with, you know, talking to thousands of people, but now today professionally, you know, I get to see addiction as it truly is. It's not in this vacuum where there's just these alcoholics and some right. addicts and everyone else is just normal. No, it is so far from that. In fact, today, people would say they're sober in recovery and they're still smoking cannabis. They yeah. would, you know, and, and some people use plant medicine. Some people, you know, they, they, um, you know, they might not, dr- uh, drink. So, you know, so they'll say they're sober, but they're, you know, they're using cannabis once in a while. It's like, right. well, well, who's the judge this person? This is what I'm saying. Who, who, who is the judge of this? Who, who's yeah. saying this is right or wrong? And the, and the reality is, is unfortunately, it ties back into big pharma ties is why yeah. people are right or wrong and not actual human people who started, you know, um, these recovery movements that are, you know, trying to, you know, help to open up what is the definition and what, how can we have more harm reduction for people? 
Yeah, that's interesting to me. When you think about alcohol, I mean, it is it's not it's not hard to convince people that alcohol is a dangerous drug, but that is not part of our vernacular as a society. Drug does not seem to be synonymous with alcohol, even though by definition, I think it, it really is. And I, I think so much of that has to do with branding over the last 50 to 100 years. I mean, it's just, it, there's so much money at, money in it. But when it comes to marijuana and weed, for example, I mean, that's, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know nearly as much as you do about big pharma and the, the propaganda that was released around marijuana in the, in the 20th century. But just it's, there's such a negative stigma still, even as weed becomes legalized across the country, state by state. It just saying that you're high, it just, it feels even to me so much dirtier than saying I was drunk last night. And that's just, that's a weird, weird feeling that I think so many of us have to get over as, as time moves forward. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's basically, you know, we, <laughs> we failed big time. Let's just yeah. put it this way. And so it's like, now we're coming into the, you know, <laughs> 2020 end of 2021 and it's like where, where are we gonna go from here are we, right. are we literally gonna keep doing what we've been doing since the war on drugs or are we gonna start to realize like this is a bunch of nonsense right we need to redefine i mean that's why there's people talking about legalization of all drugs and yeah. this coming at the united nations level kofi Annan, you know he wrote an article talking about the you know and this is one of the guys that head in the un so you know so Will that happen? I, I don't think so personally anytime soon, but you will see definitely, you will see cannabis. Um, you definitely will see MDMA and psilocybin and all these different plant medicines at a therapeutic level. Um, I, I see them becoming, you know, um, decriminalized first. And then, you know, and, 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 but why though? Why would they ever criminalize in the first place? You know, so it's kind of like if you do, if you do your history search, yeah. you start to realize like, wait, things are really screwed up, like yeah. how we got to where we were. It's not like some good people got together and said, hey, let's just make these illegal because these are bad. And it's way deeper than that. And yeah. there's a lot of, it's very, very political. And so it's, we just have to be honest with ourselves about that. And when we do the history, it's, it's not pretty. So people don't want to go there, but like, I don't know about you. I don't want to live in an illusion if I'm going to try to redefine recovery or, or addiction. I want to make sure that I'm understanding it from different viewpoints, even the science, looking at all angles and realize like maybe the definition we have today is broken. Yeah. And, um, and I think when we just start having those conversations and we can really get down to the core causes and conditions of why people numb out and, and not, and not demonize people. Cause that's feeding massive, massive industries. So, yeah. you know, and I'm just speaking to the, I mean, people know this, but they, but some really don't know this. And so, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I, I want to talk more about de decriminalization, but prior to that, I, and I wish I knew more about this, but I, from the limited research I've done, it seems as if the crap, not the crap, the crack epidemic in the eighties and nineties was put in place in, in, I guess, conjunction with the war on drugs. And it, it it's, it's, 
ultimately what has caused so much disparity between white and black people in America. And I, please, if if you know anything that I don't correct me, but from what I've seen in documentaries and I've read uh, in articles, that seems to be the case, which just adds so much credence to to the, the, the notion that the war on drugs is, is so false and so put in place to really hold certain groups of people down. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take long to search on Google and come up with like, all right, where did the, why did the war on drugs start? You know? Right. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's pretty clear and it was to suppress people (laughs) and, uh, uh, specifically black people. And, and, and so it's not hard to see that. It's just, this isn't like debatable anymore. It's, it's just well known how many books are on this now. And so I, I think this is where we can start to say, well, who do we want to have in charge going forward, setting the policies so that we're living in reality instead of having certain people do this, including lobbying and big pharma. So I think that's really the, the, the challenge that we have moving forward as decriminalization happens is, well, then if it's decriminalized and eventually becomes legalized at a therapeutic level, well, who's in charge then? And if yeah. big pharma is, well, well then what's going to happen with these, mar- with, with these uh, different substances then? You yeah. know, how, how are they going to be? What's the quality? How is it, is it going to be accessible to all? What's the cost? So, you know, we're making really small steps towards progress, but at the same time, we're going backwards in many ways as well. Um, and I would say with the opioid crisis is a good example of that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Now, there, there haven't there, there've been countries in Europe, and I even thought that I'd seen Portland, Oregon had decriminalized all drugs in an effort to provide the resources that addicts need to recover instead of tossing people in jail and throwing them in the system where they are stuck in this infinite loop of not being able to get a job and then getting thrown back in jail again. There are they actually providing resources so people can one do drugs safely if that is the need, but two also provide resources so people can start to recover. Has that happened in Portland? I thought I'd heard that, but I mean it has happened in other European countries, correct? Yeah, Portugal was the first uh, country to legalize drugs, and. you know, and, and the truth, it's easy to, to look at that and, and be like, look at the success they've had to cut back right. drug addiction. But you could also look at other articles and look at like, what's the harms that have been caused because of that. So right. it, it's, it's not, it's not an end all be all solution because the, rea- the reality is we're still not getting to the root problem, you know, yeah. just because we're legalizing drugs and it's not getting to the root c- cause of why people are using them to begin with. And, um, you know, so um, yeah, I mean, you just have to look at like, why are people using these things? And it's because they have tremendous psychological burdens on their hands. And, and they're, and, and if they didn't have these, they wouldn't even know how to cope. And, 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 and how, what, where would they learn coping mechanisms from right. school? Like where, where do you learn the cope? You know, I didn't learn anything. In, if anything, I, I gained a lot of trauma in school. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of like not even playing the victim card. It's really just the facts of like, where do we get coping tools to deal instead of having to, you know, you know, even tobacco, I mean, nicotine, I mean, that's like, how, how is that still legal? You right. know, but it is. And, 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 
it's you know it just goes to show you like look at what was accessible during the, the during the lockdowns and there you go what was still accessible was the liquor stores right tobacco fast food so it's like okay you know where you stand when it comes to your health and your life yeah <laughs> with the powers that be <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm not sure. I asked myself uh, over the last years why are liquor stores considered essential. I mean, obviously you've got grocery store. I don't know. That's 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 I'm sure a debate within itself. But um, what I'm most curious about is you are absolutely correct. I mean, I don't think. Well, I, I know schools, at least traditional public schools, or I'm sure private schools as well, they, they are not teaching coping mechanisms. They are not teaching emotional intelligence. That's not just, that's not where you go to learn that. And I, I, I it's great when adults are able, able to learn that themselves, but we're not as, our brains are not as, there's not as much neuroplasticity in our brains as there used to be when we were children, as far as I understand it. And so when we are growing up, these are the skills that we should be taught. And so, I mean, as an adult, where do we go to, to learn that? Where do we go to find that so we can develop ourselves in a way that we can cope with the traumas in our, in our, in our lives as we've grown up? Well, yeah, that's, that's the issue. And especially if you're dealing with alcoholism or if you're dealing with drug addiction, where do you right. go? So it's, it's like, that's, that's just it. And so that's where, you know, for me, it's kind of like, all right, well, what, what can I do? And that's what I, what's what I tell people who are ready to serve people. It's like, well, you know, think about it. Did you have coping mechanisms that you got to learn uh, that you learned that were helpful, that helped you to get through those times? No. So write a book, you know, put it in your book, you put the coping mechanisms in the book and then teach and speak and make videos. And, and that's really what I'm doing today. It's kind of like, I never was a writer. That was the last thing I was going to do. But then, you know, I just started doing it and I was like, oh, this is a way to, to give people coping mechanisms. And that's all I ever wanted was like a blueprint and, and coping mechanisms and how to live. And, and I realized that, yeah, people did grow up with those. They, they grew up in two families, you know, they had a mother and a father. They grew up, they learned right from wrong. They learned how to self-regulate and all that, but that's not how it was in my house. So, so I didn't get to learn those things. And I realized that a lot of people, even with uh, both parents, didn't get to learn self-regulation. So I think that, you know, sports is an outlet for many people to learn that, but many people don't play sports. So it's right. like what, you know, so I, I think there's not an easy answer today. I mean, thank God we have the internet and people have cell phones because now you can YouTube and you can Google and have, you can get insight time. You can have, there's so many ways to self-regulate, but you know, why aren't we, you know, it's like, how do we actually teach, uh, how, you know, it's just, it's a big revolution that needs to happen to really yeah. come from the foundation of mental health right from the beginning, right from kindergarten. Right yes. away, you're learning mental health, kindergarten. You're not learning mathematics. You're learning health. You're learning well-being. And then, yeah, yeah you can eventually learn geometry and trigonometry and whatever. I don't even know how you're going to use any of that. But, but <laughs> you, you can start to learn, like, how do I use deep, heart-focused breathing? How do I self-regulate my emotions when, you know, my dad come home, comes home drunk? You know, what, what do I do? What are my coping mechanisms? And, you know, instead of sniffing glue or, like, getting outside myself. And right. so I think, yeah, we have a huge opportunity. Yeah, we do. I really, really loved, 
and I, and I, I, I'll preface this by saying I loved what she did. I, I, I did what I, where I, I, I loved the fact that Simone Biles was able to have an open conversation with the world, saying that she was stepping out of competition during the Olympics because she was having mental health issues. I loved that. I mean, because I, I think it really shined a light on a young woman who is prioritizing her mental health. And so she's making an example of herself for young girls everywhere, young people everywhere. What I hated was that people put it up for debate. I remember uh, there's a local radio station here in, in, in town, and they had posted something on Facebook saying, do you agree with Simone Biles' decision to pull out of the line? I mean, how, how is that even a question? Why, why would my opinion on whether or not what she did was right have any bearing whatsoever? I mean, what she did was, was brave and it started a really important conversation. And hopefully kids, even adults, will take the opportunity to ask themselves and to ask their parents, what is mental health? I mean, why is it important? What can we do to make sure that our family environment is creating a an atmosphere that that breeds strong emotional health as opposed to negating everything that we've we've done for ourselves? Is it important to limit screen time? What what's important for that in our lives? And so, I really loved the fact that somebody in such a, an incredible spotlight was able to have an open and honest conversation despite any lashback that she had. I, I think it was a really a really really good thing for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is it's, there's so much stigma around this that people are triggered and those people that are triggered, they're dealing with their own stuff and they don't want to look at it. So it's really like, that's the whole, that's the cosmic joke. It's like people are triggered by this, but it's because they just don't even understand that they have that in their own life. And, and, you know, for some of them, we can't fault them because they really don't even understand that they don't understand mental health. So I think that anyone who stands out and speaks for their, you know, their mental well-being, their, 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 their health, their mental health is like a hero. Do it, yeah. you know, speak out. And, and you know what, if it ruffles feathers and you get all these like, you know, wounded masculine men coming in saying, that's not true, you know, strength. It's like, who are these people even saying that? Who cares? Like, it doesn't even matter. What matters is your own well-being and not abandoning yourself in the process of honoring your health. And because at the end of the day, their opinions are going to be gone and your health is still going to be there. So it's like, that's what matters. Health is wealth. That's everything. And mental health is a huge part of your health. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's so important for people to internalize. Now, for for yourself and, and for me, these you and I who try to have these conversations with people. So I, I'm not saying by any means I have perfected any of my coping mechanisms. I, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant battle to make sure that I understand my emotions and able to respond to them appropriately. But I, through this podcast, I want to make sure I'm promoting a healthy message and. More often than not, I talk about having nuanced conversation instead of being at each other's throats, instead of threatening each other with with harm or with uh, sharp words. I want to be able to find common ground with people. And I, you know, I, I don't particularly, I, well, I, I don't work with clients in that capacity. I, I build websites, but you do. And so when you have that masculine man who doesn't want to open up, doesn't want to show vulnerability or even a, emotion, I mean, what is your approach there? Because there has to be a way that we can all find common ground in some way, shape, or form. Because I really, really, truly believe that's our best 
best path forward. Instead of being at each other's throats all the time, we have to be able to find nuance. Yeah, to me, it's really simple. It's conversations. Yeah. That's all it is. Like there, You want to heal the planet, get people in a room together, get it well choreographed, the conversations, get a good facilitator in there, and then create the psychological safety necessary with the right appropriate questions that are guiding the conversations. And next thing you know, you have 400 people together or 4,000 people together that never would have been talking to each other. And now they're like, oh my God, I had no idea what this was about. It's that simple. It's always been that simple. Get people in a room and get them talking. And as soon as that starts to happen, they start to relate. But you have to do it around stories. Yeah. And, and when people start to hear the personal stories in smaller settings, they start to realize, like, I really don't know anything about this. Like, I need to do more. But when that person was before they got into that circle, they thought they knew everything. They did a yes. Google search. They listened to one show. And they said, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but they've never actually experienced it themselves. So I think that the key to this, all of this is inquiry, is asking questions. And, the, and that's kind of what uh, secretly maybe as what I'm dedicated my life to was, is yeah, on the outside, I'm an author and a coach and a facilitator. But what I really look to do is I want to put you know, run global summits, global addiction summits. And these are going to be big awareness summits to bring people together around generative questions where we can actually talk about resilience and mental health and well-being and let people talk to each other in small groups and then do these activities together so that we can actually start to find solutions together. That's how it happens. It happens in community. It doesn't happen any other way. It doesn't happen from a couple of people with white suits at the top of the pyramid, making decisions for everybody. Like, no, that's where we got, that's why exactly where we are today. It's still happening today. But as soon as we get away from that, we go back to this community, this tribal questions and we, we, they're relevant, they're understandable, the the language is accessible to the audience. That's where people start to change. I I love that. I, I, I don't think I've been around long enough to remember a time when people were able to, when people were forced to have conversations. And I, I was, I was just having this conversation a couple of days ago. I, I, this is conversation. You and I talking right now, a voice to voice. This is conversation. To me, I really, in my own mind, want to remove that label from anything online. When you're typing to somebody, to me, that that I, I can't consider that a conversation because you can't hear intonation, you can't see facial and body cues unless it, you you can't you can't do that. And so it is so impossible to have a real heart to heart conversation that way. And so I I love that you have that desire to to bring people in into that summit and, and actually it's not, it's not to change people's minds is to, it's to, to find that, that common ground, you know, what you had said reminded me of one of my favorite quotes of all time. And I, I really, really do my best to live by this quote, Abraham Lincoln, I believe he said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better or something along those lines. And when I first read that, it struck me that so many of the people I, I tell myself I don't like, I know absolutely nothing about. And I, I don't know if I ha- even have any reason to not like them. And when I'm able to think about that and actually get to know somebody, there's a very good chance that at the very least, we're going to have something to talk about. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you think about throughout your life, all the times when you've been wrong, it's just too many to count, right? Yeah. You thought you knew something and then more information came and you were humbled. 
And I think that's, that's really been my life's journey with addiction and mental health is like, like, Oh, I, you know, I think I got this. I think I understand this. And then boom, I'm putting to another position I haven't been in before. And I learned, I learned critical information that changed my opinions and, and I'm in this space and this, I mean, this is the space I'm in and it's constantly being updated and challenged. So I think that for people that are not in this space, it is like, it's just kind of like whatever I can pull out of the first search on Google or whatever I can just learn from my cousin, Mike, that's, that's my definition of uh, addiction. And this is what I understand it to be. But when you've lived it, I've lived it for my whole life now and been in recovery for a long time, over 15 years. And, uh, you know, like, it's like I can give so many examples. When I was t- in 2016, I, I was finishing my clinical mental health master's degree, and I uh, um, I was in a drug I was in a drug court. That's I was a therapist with eight clients in a drug court, and I and I at that time I'd already had nearly 10 years of recovery. I thought, you know, hey, you know, I, I know what this is about, and I got into that drug court, and I thought I understood, like, you know you know, medicated assisted treatment. It's a big controversial topic. So I'm in there and I'm like, I had a certain position on it. And then three people died of overdose during that um, internship. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea the importance of medicated assisted treatment. I had no idea how important it was until I did that internship and realized like, there's people who literally are homeless, no family, drug charges. They can do nothing. Literally, they are like stuck, stucker than stuck. Right. And they have an addiction to fentanyl. And the only way that they're going to be able to cope is through this drug court program. And they are on medicated assisted treatment to help keep them alive. Who are you to judge them to for staying alive by using something that keeps them from using something that's going to kill them. And I had this huge awakening during that. And a lot of my friends who are in recovery, I changed their minds about that because they literally were like, nope, that's not recovery. That's not really being recovered. And the reality is, is I had, I showed them that you're actually wrong about that because recovery is whatever you define it as. Yeah. We don't like that, but. For the sake of myself and for the sake of anybody who has never heard the term uh, medicated assistant uh, treatment before, can you just give an overview of what that entails for somebody who's struggling with addiction? Yeah, it would be like someone who is addicted to fentanyl and then there could be put on, you know, temporarily for a short time methadone to transition off and then eventually um, put on um, some type of blocker for opioids and um, naltrexone. And, uh, as one of them, and that's, that would be considered, you know, something that would help so that if they did shoot up heroin, they wouldn't actually, um, they'd get really sick. And so, so they wouldn't do it again. So that would be, that's a easy example of there's other examples, but that's just an easy example I could give. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so I I don't think we, we touched on it, but when when you spoke about, we were having a conversation about uh, learning more about about people, uh, getting to understand them a little bit better. I, that for whatever reason, uh, the so you when when you went into recovery, you went into AA, correct? Yeah, I was court ordered. Okay, and I, I'm I'm just I'm curious what that experience was like for you. And I, I asked that from the standpoint of obviously it, I'm assuming it helped you uh, become a, a recovering alcoholic or a recover just recovering. Um, but what was it like getting to? What was it like being around all the others who have had 
similar but exponentially different lives getting to that same point as you i'm just i'm curious what that looked like now from a uh, a, a recovery specialist to who you are in 2021 to what it was like when you were going through that program well you know you know let's go back 15 years i'm 20 yeah. years old i'm arrested with federal felonies due to opioids and i'm now told to go to meetings and get these papers signed because i'm yeah. on probation and so I, I go to the first meeting and I get the paper signed and, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was hor- horrifying. And, but it was horrifying because I didn't know anything about myself. I didn't know anything about what was going to happen to me. I didn't know anything about what these meetings were. And eventually, you know, you know, I just kept going, getting the paper signed. Eventually you meet good people. You do, yeah. you meet good people. And that's the key is like, you know, you meet you, you eventually if you go long enough with a, a you know enough consistency you start to meet really good people now yeah. you know there's a lot of people that are not good people and so just like with anything you know and so uh you know that's that's what ended up happening and eventually you you know meet you meet people your age and eventually you start to realize like oh wait this isn't the NLBL this is like spiritual kindergarten so i need yeah. to branch out and i need to find other means of living and 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 i did that very early on like i actually knew that in the first 2 months that like even though there was a lot of stress under my belt i said i literally better get some mentors and and start to go all in and 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 listen to these mentors and that's really what got me to get through those first early days is, is I had a, a mentor and, you know, he said to start to journal and we would meet weekly and, yeah. you know, and, and plus on top of going to these required meetings, I, you know, and working full time, which was huge. Uh, the, these, this combination really kept me like, um, you know, together. And then eventually, you know, you start to gain a lot of positive habits and, and yeah. I was a habit person. I loved habits. And so I just kept, doing these habits like journaling and, you know, doing meditation exercise. Um, and, and, you know, it just, I started to realize like my life is in my own hands and I didn't fully grasp that, grasp that until 2017 when I decided to leave a job and go on my own as an entrepreneur. Then I really, truly realized like, holy moly, like now, now this is like freedom and it's very scary. And now everything, every move I make is, um, matters. And it's not that it didn't matter before, but it, it really didn't. You know, you had this cushion, you knew you had the paycheck, you knew, you know, you just show up, you do the work and you go home. And, right. and now like it's the unknown, you know, there's no set hours. And so I think, um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I certainly didn't take any type of traditional path to recovery, but it did start as a required place for me to go to meetings. And um, I met a lot of amazing people that are still in my life today. That's fantastic. Was the, I, as far as I understand it, a 12 step program is a fundamental part of AA. Is that, is, was that a part of your recovery as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're going to stick around long enough, you're going to realize like the person who started this, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, they created yeah. it based on a program. They didn't base it on a fellowship. They based it on a program of action, which is the 12 steps. So that's eventually was definitely something that was part of my recovery. And I worked it extremely thoroughly and I helped a lot of people through it. And then, and then eventually I was, I hit this place where I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much you know, th- there's been a huge shift in recovery, um, and and I and, and the coronavirus and things that have happened yeah. have have aided to that. So, you know, I think that um, you know, 
it was, it was life-changing those experiences. And today, like I'm, I'm on a, a different path that I'm helping to reach people that are from any walk of life that are just looking to start to heal more of the emotional addictions that are the kind of the root causes of the physical addictions. And that's really where I'm the most interested in today because those, those places are already doing their job. So I, I'm, I've moved on and, and, and kind of done doing my own thing and, and serving people in my own way to try to find, you know, what, what's the real root cause? Cause that's not what happens in those places. You don't get to the root cause. They don't deal with trauma and they tell you right up front, they don't deal with that. So I'm more interested in what, what I believe is the true cause of addiction, which is the underlying emotional injuries and trauma. Yeah. I, 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 I can't applaud you enough for the work you're doing. It's, it's, um, it means a lot. I mean, just having this conversation with you and, and for the people who are just severely struggling right now. And uh, I, I know the last year and a half has been extremely difficult for a lot of people. And I know it put a lot of people in a dark place. And uh, from what I understand, a lot of people drank a, a lot more than they, they should have, uh, or, you know, pursued other extracurricular activities that, you know, perhaps got them in a dark place. So I, the work you're doing has never been more important than it is right now. So I, I, I cannot thank you enough for being a resource for those people. Um, you know, I, one question I get more often than not, I, I'm, I'm very open with, uh, the fact that I, I quit drinking almost two years ago. And, you know, I, people tend to ask me, you know, what, what is, what is the secret? You know, what, it, what, it, what can I do to, to cut back on my alcohol and, or my alcohol intake? And I, I don't have an answer for those people. And it, it seems to me like they are reaching out, uh, to try to, you know, improve their lives just a little bit. And so I, I guess my first question in that regard is, would you say that more often than not we abuse alcohol, even though we don't necessarily put that uh, that that label on it? I mean, you think about being in college, you think about binge drinking. I mean, that is that is very much an abuse of alcohol, at least in in, in my eyes. But I mean, just a casual going out to happy hour, four or five or six drinks. I mean, is that alcohol abuse? I mean, where where do we draw that line? Where do we start to think that we may have an opportunity to? improve ourselves a little bit by cutting back on our alcohol. Yeah. I mean, that's something that you have to judge for yourself. I mean, if you're, you know, you just got to be honest with yourself, you know, if you're going out on a Saturday night and you're having a bunch of drinks and that's what you want to do and have fun, then okay. But right. if you're, you know, okay, it's Wednesday night and I'm going to have some wine and then Thursday night I'm going to have six beers and then Friday <laughs> night I'm going to have some tequila. It's like, well, then you have to ask yourself, why do you have to do it every night? Like what, what is causing you to do that? And, yeah. you know, is it choice? Is you, are you just being like, no, this is what I choose to do. It's like, well, why though? <laughs> what, what purpose does it serve? And it's like, well, it helps me fall asleep. Okay. Well, why are you having a hard time falling asleep? You know, so I think it's, it's kind of to each his own. And, you know, there's people who drink every single night and, yeah. and that's, and they, you know, they, they, they'll never go to a meeting. They'll never go down these paths and, and that's fine, but it catches up to them eventually. And then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll moderate, right. They'll, they'll cut back, they'll find another way. And, and then life goes on and this is happening to millions of people all the time. So it's kind of just, you know, it's, it's, you, you kind of have to just check in with yourself. And that's what I'm saying. When you spend some time with yourself, which people don't want to do, that's when a lot of answers show up because it's like, oh my God, I'm running away because I got this student loan debt. 
You know, I'm running away because, you know, I still never uh, made the amends to my brother. You know, I never, never made things right. So, you know, it's like, that's usually the cause of, of, of why someone might be drinking, you know, more excessively over longer periods of time. It's, it's usually not just like, yeah, I'm just having fun and I deserve this. It's like, well, I've never met anyone who's, who's been that way, but if that's true, then that's great. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, you have to just check in with yourself and, you know, if you're having a beer here once in a while and, you know, that's serving you, then what's the harm? Fine. But if, if, you know, if, if you're using every night, you know, if you're using alcohol every single night or even every weekend, you're just kind of zipping through the whole weekend. And then Monday is like trying to recover. You know, I, I think you got to take a look at that and be like, why am I doing that? Like why? And, and it's like, you could be like 24 years old and be like, that's why is what I'm doing. I'm 24, but you know, eventually it catches up to you. I mean, it's not like it's like, like alcohol is on the top of the food pyramid that's health conscious, you know, it's good for health. No, it's, it's not good for you. (laughs) So, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have asked that question of other people before and I've, I, I definitely asked it of myself. And if I were to answer that, you know, looking back a couple of years, I think the top answer would probably be boredom. Um, and then the, the, you know, close second would be to alleviate anxiety. Um, and I, you know, asking yourself, why are you bored? Well, because I, I, I don't have any hobbies or, and why don't I have any hobbies? Well, because I, I, I don't know people who enjoy the same things. I, I, I like the practice of asking why, because to your point, you can get down to the root cause eventually, and then you can address it at that level instead of, you know, just saying, I need to quit drinking, but you don't necessarily have a, a solid foundation for why. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, that's what I'm saying. You got to meet people where they're at. I mean, if yeah. you, you know, it's it's so hard to 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 take someone's inventory and and say what they need to do because you just got to meet people where they're at. And you know, yeah. if I get to spend some time with a person, it doesn't take me long. But I've been trained to do this like for a yeah. long time. But you know, for the average person, it looks normal. And um, you know, it's run rampant in my family, and I've seen what it can do. It's run rampant with friends, and I've seen what it does. So it's it's just you know, like I said, it's, it's like you said, when I hear boredom though, that, that to me is like, well, why, why do you have boredom? You know what I mean? And then we just deeper and then we find out that the boredom comes from, you know, an unfulfilled career, you know, it comes from unfulfilled marriage. So this, so this is what I mean. Like, so you're actually using it to numb out that, (laughs) you know what I mean? So it's, it's all there. So no, you're not an alcoholic or an addict, but you're doing it to numb out. So let's figure out how we can bring some zest into our life to live our purpose, to figure out how we can stop numbing out. Yeah. We can get to bed a little bit earlier. We can start to take care of our health again. It's all related to taking care of our health. Absolutely. There's, um, I don't want to get on a tangent, but there's a book called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. And it's been a couple of years since I've read it, but I mean, it, it gets into whether or not alcohol is good for your sleep and spoiler alert, it's not good for your sleep at all. Before uh, we start to wrap up, I, I do want to talk about your book because we haven't mentioned it yet. But uh, uh, your book, if not you, then who? Uh, what? Talk to me a little bit about the book and what really inspired the work behind it. Yeah. So when I started to go to you know church basements and share my story, I would have people come up to me and say, "Man." your story is like, I would love to just hear that whole story. And I was like, yeah, you know, and then someone early on said, you should write a book about it. And, you know, and, and I, and that's seed stuck. And I was like, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe someday. And, you know, and then what ended up happening was 
I, I had this book idea for like four, four years, three years. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? And, and am I, when am I going to write it? And, but I had this concept of a toolkit. Like we talked about coping tools and mechanisms. Yeah. And I had this toolkit already thought of because it was something I'd been living for such a long time. I'm like, oh, and I keep adding to it with these new tools. And so this book was the result of like wanting to share my whole story, which is I shared as much as humanly possible in the first five chapters of my story. So it really starts, it starts off, there's an intro about addiction and, and my views on it, but then it goes right into my story, like a memoir. And then from there, I go into the toolkit because I wanted to show people why would anyone go and do these action steps on a daily basis to better their life? Why would anyone do that? I don't, I don't want to do that. But I framed it so that like with the life that I had for me to not do these actions every day would be crazy. And yeah. so, and I, and to be honest, I think for most people not taking some of the action steps in the book is crazy because you know, we're so full of pharmaceuticals we're so full of depression and anxiety and all yeah. these things that are happening more than ever. The pandemic is only exacerbated so much. So the numbers are huge in Canada and in the United States, you can look them up. It's, it's just like suicide rates are up. Addiction is up, anxiety, depression rates. So it's, you know, workplace disgruntledness, you know, like all of it is way up. So it's kind of like, all right, what am I going to do about this story that I just shared in this book? And, and then I, and I have a toolkit and the toolkit is, is the acronym is fears and fears is something I just love because fear is a compass and I, and people look at fear and it's a bad evil and it's fear mongering. It's bad. And I look at it like, oh man, if I'm fearful of this, it's because there's something I'm not looking at. It's the shadow side. Right. People don't want to admit they have a shadow. So, um, fears was the name I gave the, the, the acronym and there's 30 action steps. And so the, the last four, five chapters of the book is about breaking down these these 30 actions and these 30 actions to, to live your purpose your best life this isn't for people who are like getting out of a sober home this is for people that that would be a great person absolutely but this right. is for anyone this is for the ceo the tech ceo this is for you know the mother down the street who's drinking too much wine or her husband is 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 you know numbing out with whatever so i think it's that's kind of how I wrote it. It's, it's for everyone. And, um, but I wanted to tell my story and, and that's what I was able to do in this book. That's amazing. I, I, I really cannot wait to read it. Uh, I mean, the work you're doing is just incredible. And I, I really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time to have this conversation with me. Yeah, absolutely. And the audiobook will be out in the next 30 days. So I just want okay. to throw that out there. F fantastic. Did you, uh, did you narrate it? I did, yes. How was that process? I've always been curious how long it takes and how, how, I don't know if tedious is the right word, but to me, it seems tedious. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. <laughs> yeah, I did I my first one with this is the cold shower book. And then that one is a very, very short book. It, the audiobook is an hour and six minutes total of the oh, first book. Wow. So this one is over five hours. So this <laughs> one is just like, it's a mammoth project, but yeah. very rewarding when it's your own voice, especially when you're telling your own story. Yeah. Yeah, for it's sure. rewarding, but it is it is a lot of work. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. I'm excited to, to, to see that come out. And um, again, I appreciate it. But before I let you go, I do have a few closing questions. And I'm, I'm excited to, to hear your answers to these. Um, the first of which is, 
I, I like to be a resource for my guests because they're a resource for me. They're spending an hour of their time with me, which I, I very much appreciate. And so I always like to ask if there was something or a resource that you personally were looking for to continue your personal growth journey or your journey toward personal growth. And a listener happens to hear this across the world and they say, ah, hey, I can help Jesse. Uh, what would that resource be that you are personally looking for? Yeah, um, I would say like the greatest resource right now um, would be something like the, you know, uh, I would say journaling. And if, yeah. you know, if you reach out to me, I'll give you a, 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 it's called a fears journal template. So I really think like a great resource would be uh, journaling. And um, I think, I think that's really the greatest one, because if you're doing that every single day, you're really going to start to see the patterns and the fear. You're going to start to see these underlying emotional injuries and no one wants to really do that. But if you have a accountability, you have something that can, someone that can help you along the way, I think it's the most helpful. So, um, yeah, I think, I think journaling and, and, and I do have a journaling template in the book and, uh, but I do also send a free template if you go to my website as well. That's great. That's perfect. And I will, um, we'll talk about your contact information in a second, but I will have all those links in the, the show notes too. Um, and then next question, if you could credit one book with having a profound impact on your life, what would that book be and why? Well, there's so many. And I think that I'm just going to be, I'm just going to share the most current one just because yeah. I think this could be the most valuable. Um, it's been around for a long time, but it's called The Inner Bonding. And the inner bonding workbook. So this book, it was something something not in my my field um, for most of my life and my recovery. But you know, it came into my life um, when it just at the right time recently, and I uh, worked through it. Through I worked through it, and man, it has unlocked incredible levels of trauma that I I literally didn't even. And, and in fact, after I wrote the book, is when I released the most trauma. So it's very interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would say that book is a great one. That's fantastic. Dr. Margaret Paul. Okay, perfect. Awesome. And then, uh, Jesse, last question. If you could leave the audience with one personal call to action that you either live your life by or you implore your friends, your family, or your clients to live their lives by, what would that be? It would be to do it now. Yeah. Literally do it right now. Like, don't wait at all. Like, literally do it right now. And then, you know, worry about it later. Just do it now. And once you've done it, got it done, you're going to thank yourself for a long time. I love that. And I, on, on top of that, I mean, we, we don't know how much time we have left to, given, you know, hopefully that becomes readily apparent or has become readily apparent over the last two years. So uh, yeah, that's, that's sage advice. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, Trey. Yeah. Well, Jesse, if uh, people would like to reach out to you, contact you, purchase your books, what is the best way uh, for them to, to find you online? Well, I would say Instagram, Jesse Harless two two two. You know, I'm starting to get more active there. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible with social media, but I'm definitely getting more active there. And so, I would say that I go to that. Yeah, Jesse, Jesse Harless two two two. Perfect. And then uh, your website. Yeah, jesseharless.com. and that's where you can get the free journal too. Awesome. Well, I will have all those links in the show notes. And again, Jesse, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the work you're doing. Um, it, it obviously, it, it means a lot to me personally, and I, I, I hope it resonates with others, others as well. So again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Trey. This is such an honor. Appreciate it. 
Once again, please help me thank Jesse for joining me on the podcast. This was such a wonderful conversation, and if his message resonated with you, please be sure to check out the show notes at themosaiclifepodcast.com. You can find Jesse on Instagram, you can check out his website, you can order his books, and of course, you can just reach out to him and ask him more about his journey. If you or a loved one are dealing with alcohol or substance abuse issues, I've included additional resources in the show notes. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if you would like to reach out, I would of course be more than happy to point you in the right direction. I've had a number of wonderful conversations on this topic, and I can promise you there are people out there willing and ready to help. And of course, before we wrap up, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. It means the world to me, and it's not something I will ever take for granted. Until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.